hello and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zafiro, and we have an awesome show for you uh, here today. Uh, our guest will be Christopher Moore, best-selling humor author. He wrote such uh, bestsellers as Lamb, his uh, vampire series, the medieval series starring Pocket, and the excuse I used to invite him on the show is his uh, most recent book, uh, Noir, uh, which is set in uh, uh, 1940s San Francisco and is a humorous take on the uh, classic P.I. novel. So we're going to talk to him for a bit, uh, but before we get there, let's uh, hear from the sponsor of Wrong Place, Right Crime. Uh, our show is sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down Out Books is a fast-growing publisher uh, that uh, publishes mystery on the gritty, edgy end of that genre. Uh, here from Down and Out Books is the founder and chief editor, Eric Campbell, to tell us a little bit about what's going on this month. Hi, Frank. This is Eric Campbell with Down and Out Books, and I've got a couple of new titles for your listeners. In Thieves, Stephen Russo's thrilling debut, we're introduced to Esmeralda, a housekeeper with drive and ambition, but no money. When one of her clients is out of town, she hatches a plan with two partners. However, she finds herself in a difficult spot that is far more dangerous than she ever thought possible. Andrew Grant says Thieves is a dynamic read and you won't be able to put it down. Tom Pitts is back with 101. TJ English says Pitts is fast becoming the underworld bard of the Bay Area, and 101 is his best yet. Plenty of violent action, betrayal, and tough talk. Reading 101 will give you a contact high. Get this book now. 101 received our first book list review, and they say a nice twist on a genre staple. Your listeners can find out more at downandoutbooks.com. Thanks a million for having me on the show, Frank. Well, thanks, Eric. I have to tell you folks, uh, if you like dark crime fiction, you can't go wrong with Down and Out Books. I'm, I'm proud to be uh, in their stable and uh, surrounded by just a slew of excellent writers. If you like dark fiction, give them a try. Uh, now let's move on to our featured interview with humor author Christopher Moore. Well, welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me, Frank. This is a podcast largely about crime fiction authors and about crime fiction work, uh, mm -hmm. at least as a jumping off point. Um, but, uh, and you fall into that category, although not primarily. So maybe for those listeners who aren't uh, as familiar with your work or, or, or only familiar with your most recent work uh, that is crime fiction, you could give us a quick idea. Who is Christopher Moore? What, are, what kind of books do you write? And, and, and so forth. Uh, I think the only thing that's consistent, uh, Noir is my 16th novel, and I've been publishing, I've been selling them since 1990, um, publishing since 1992. And I think the only thing that's consistent about all of them is that they're funny. There's there's some kind of comedy in them. And uh, most of them have, I think all of them have some supernatural event in them as well, just because I get bored with reality. Uh, so there's everything from, I, you know, I've written a book about the untold life of Jesus. I've written a book about cargo cults in the, in the South Pacific. I've written uh, uh, three books based on Shakespeare plays. Um, I've written a book based uh, uh, historical about the uh, Impressionist painters, and, and basically the plot is the color blue. Uh, so I'm sort of all over the place, but I'd say the thing that's consistent about it 
is there's always something funny. And usually there's a little bit of some sort of horror or crime aspect of them just to drive the plot. So even though, uh, you know, they may be comedies, there's some sort of suspense built in it. I started out as um, thinking I was a horror story writer and I went to a workshop um, and read my short stories and everybody laughed at them. And I went, oh, well, I guess that's <laughs> what I do. That's an honest to God true story. I, um, and so I went, I'm going to go with that because apparently that's what I do. So only so do that, it on purpose next time, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. So, so that's sort of um, my uh, my milieu, if you will, if if I could mispronounce something in French. But uh, that's who I am, and and so my su- my subject matter will go all over the place. But uh, generally, it'll come come around to being funny, and and hopefully takes a reader on a ride. Now, humor being something that's you know, laced throughout all the books and, and a lot of, at least in every one that I've read, there's a s- supernatural element, sometimes a big supernatural element. Uh, but they tend to, at least the ones I've read, they tend to be a little body too. Um, is that true of all of the books or have I just landed on the, on the sexy ones? I think that, yeah, I, I, I sometimes joke that I, I basically make my living stringing the, together dick jokes into novel form. Um, but that's just because I think I, I just like writing. I think it's funny. I think it's it's a it's a great sort of semi uncomfortable area to write stuff. So yeah, some are, the Shakespeare books are way more body than the other ones because yeah. the main character is this little fool. And the first one I book I wrote of those called Fool is uh, a sort of a retelling of King Lear. And you have everybody knows King Lear as sort of the three princesses, the daughter of Lear, are are more or less competing for uh, parts of Britain's the kingdom of Britain. And uh, my attitude was to put the fool, who's a fairly minor character in the play, and give him the, the main point of view and sort of make him the the least powerful character, uh, pulling all the strings. And and I remember, and as I was just sort of outlining this in a idea form where I'm, you're just sketching it out i thought and his goal is to shag all three of the princesses so <laughs> so um oh, oh oh so those ended up being much more body plus i love the way that british people swear and they're much less sort of self-conscious and worried about what words might offend people and so forth i mean you can you can hear words on bbc one which is the most milk toast of the bbc's um that you never hear in the U.S. that people blanch at in the U.S. because they just don't put as much meaning on it. Um, for instance, you can hear somebody call someone a twat in a political show and no one goes out. And that's how you pronounce it in, in England, by the way. Um, and and But if you do that in the United States, people are out of their minds with, I just would rather you not use that word. So, so those yeah. books tend to be much more bodied than the other ones. But there's always some sort of goofy sex thing going on, and even if it may not be the, the main focus of it, just because I think it's funny. Uh, even Lamb, which I, I think might be, might be one of your be- best known books, I think I'd be mm-hmm. safe to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a large portion of that the main characters were prepubescent and just barely postpubescent. Right. So there was, there's still some sexually charged things going on, but it was, it was much more innocent. It was much more, you, you hinted it more, but it was just as prevalent. It was just handled differently. Well, it was, uh, and again, there's a sort of a formula in it. Um, I think E.B. White said the, the problem with analyzing a joke is it's like dissecting a frog. You understand it, but it kills the frog. Um, and, and so, uh, That's pretty good. So so talking about humor, but but sort of 
of deconstructing lamb is there's always there's can always be a juxtaposition of the sacred and the profane and that can be funny uh yeah and that by example i would say something like uh, woody allen saying um uh reality is misery but it's the only place you can get a good steak or i che <laughs> i cheated um i cheated on my metaphysical uh exam by looking into my metaphysics exam by looking into the soul of the kid sitting next to me that sort of stuff um and and so lamb because it's the story the untold story of jesus the missing years basically from his his best friend biff who was written written out of the bible for being a rascal um what you have to deal with is, is you've got this this character who is basically pure and, and according to the stories the only pure human being that's ever lived and i knew i would lose my entire audience if i gave the the sort of goofy sex jokes and stuff to that character so biff gets all of them and he sort of becomes the 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 sin whipping boy for jesus or josh in my book and a lot of it was just trying to tell the story and keep my audience which is going to be just by default 70 percent judeo-christian there and there's a point where where biff hires a harlot um and they when they're on their adventures and they're very young it's 14 or 15 and he's describing to josh what goes on in that instance and and um and i think it was funny I've, a lot of people thought it was funny but it was it was basically there was a lot more to moving that humor you know you to have jesus kind of wandering through a sex comedy without losing your audience was was really a razor's edge to walk and but it, yeah it's there it's it's i i i guess i just i just think it's funny and and some of the characters um like biff and in, in lamb or pocket in my fool books they're just rascals and and mm -hmm. and sort of horn dogs and they're and they're saying things to shock people to to make the other characters uncomfortable or, or make light of them so you get a lot of that kind of stuff uh, i think i read that you you really didn't get that negative of a reaction from you know very conservative christian types from lamb even though the subject matter it, it is a sex comedy it's a coming of age comedy there was two afterwards to the book, the one that I wrote before the book was published, and then one that I wrote five years after it came out when we did a special edition that had this leather bible cover on it. And uh, the first afterward is sort of this 14 or 15 page explanation that the short form of it would be, kidding, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, uh, but it's not an attack book. I mean, that's, that's right. a, I think people who think, who assume that there were, People were going to be mad about it. They think it was an attack book. And so, but I, uh, as it turned out, people of faith really resonated with it because the goal of the book was to show the humanity of the character. And that's mm -hmm. sort of the whole point um, of, you know, there's no sacrifice if if Jesus wasn't human. You know, mm -hmm. that's that's sort of the point of the story of the legend of, of the of the faith. And um, and I didn't want to piss people off to the point where they couldn't enjoy the story. And evidently that worked. I didn't know when I was writing that that would work. And I and you can tell when you read that first afterward that I'm thinking, this is not going to work. And, uh, you know, as it turned out, you know, people, uh, I get letters almost daily from pastors who who use passages in, in their sermons and uh, people who it's taught in a, at least a dozen seminaries in the U.S. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's my only book that that is 
on the recommended reading list in in Harvard, at Harvard Divinity School. So um, you know, and they wouldn't let me into Harvard, you know, with a bomb threat. <laughs> so, but but they're teaching one of my books. So. It, it, I that was a pleasant surprise, needless to say. And in this, and if you get the special edition, the second afterwards sort of talks about that. And I think so. I think one of it was that it wasn't an attack book, and people who read it got that. Um, and the other is it stayed under the radar. You know, if it had been a movie like uh, Last Temptation or something like that, people might have freaked out. Yeah. Um, but in I've had probably. 20 30,000 emails since that book came out in 2002 and uh, four I think have been negative and they wow. were and three of those were were people that hadn't actually read the book they just didn't like the idea of it um mm. so they sent you know rah, 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 rah. and that was what was happened that's what happened with last temptation too is people misinterpreted the last temptation was the temptation presented to Jesus if he did not take the the route of being of sacrificing himself. Mm-hmm. And and so the devil shows him the vi- the vision of being with a woman and falling in love and having a family and all those things that people just couldn't tolerate. And they don't and they but they for, completely forget none of that happened. That mm-hmm. was you know the strength of the character was to say no, I'm not going to succumb to the last temptation. But I learned from that. And I learned that there was no way I could have in any context that I could have Jesus have sex. Mm-hmm. There were just there was a there were certain bridges too far, um, and so I wrote around that. Again, this is the inside baseball. Nobody cares. This we're explaining the joke, but but basically, uh, it was a pleasant surprise that nobody uh, seemed to uh, react to it negatively. And we sent it to the to the sort of hypocritical mouthpieces of the time the jerry falwells and the and the swaggarts and people like that and you know with notes like can you believe this blasphemy because i was really hoping that they'd uh you know <laughs> they'd <laughs> come after you and there was by, by the time it had been out a few months and nobody had come out and i was like calling my friends in ohio i'm going look man i'll buy the books if you burn them uh, and uh Try and it never happens. Generate a little uh, controversy, huh? <laughs> yeah, I, I, the only the only sort of satisfaction I had in that was that I got a note from uh, one of the people who worked in the library in Wasilla, Alaska, and there was this sort of thing when when Sarah Palin was running for vice president with John McCain that she, as mayor of Wasilla, had asked for a bunch of books to be removed from the Wasilla library, you know, that children, kids had access to. And one of the books was Lamb, and so I was very proud of that. I was like, I was, it was really cool to make that list, and and it has been banned, but uh, you know, it's always on a very sort of parochial, local level with you know some place in you know Sheep's Penis, Kansas, who you know they just didn't, <laughs> they didn't like the idea of it, or they would have you know banned any book that had the F word in it, you know. So, yeah, that's been good. Do you uh, do you think that some of the success of that might have came from the fact that you had during the adventures of Joshua and Biff, they encountered other religions and other philosophies and a, a lot of what they encountered found its way into what, you know, Jesus talks about in the New Testament, you know, maybe in slightly modified form. I think I think yes, but only in that it it helps it, it, it makes the story rich. Mm-hmm. And it and it makes the story work. It makes it. It's a pretty for me. It's a long book. I think it's my longest book, and it's very episodic because it's a journey. You know, um, uh, Josh and Biff go 
in search of the wise men and they go to the east and you know because in the in the gospels we kind of know there's a one scene of Jesus when he's 12 and then we don't hear from him again until he's 30 my my original take on that was well somebody should write those years and since i don't know anything about religion or history i should be that someone <laughs> and um but but at at a certain point after he you know when he's a young teenager um he and his friend decide that and he doesn't know how to be the messiah just sort of the conceit of the book is he's a, anointed by the, this angel and he has he didn't get the instruction book and and so josh says well your mother's always talking about there were these three kings at your um, birth why don't we go ask them and so they go to the east to uh to find the three wise men and they encounter each one you know one is a is a taoist alchemist and one is a buddhist monk and one is a hindu guru and so those three major thought processes religions are are sort of outlined in in as the boys grow up and learn and they're sort of become alkalites in that in those uh religions so uh, the the success of it is only in that it enriched the book it mm -hmm. it's you know there's a lot of subtext to the book that you know on top of it there's a fair number of camel jo camel jokes and elephant jokes and, <laughs> and all that stuff but it, but beneath it there's sort of the the theology of buddhism and hinduism and and uh, and taoist um alchemy um, which is where we get feng shui. I mean, that's that's really the only accessible. Like I, when I started learning about Taoist alchemy, I'm like, where's a touchstone? And that's that's sort of all these meridians of energy that runs through the planet. But more um, in in practice, it was more of philosophy, basically a philosophy of inaction. But that doesn't matter. I don't want to go down that ra that rabbit hole. But it it's um, I think that it helped the success of it. And the book was a hundred percent word of mouth. Um, in its success. It still sells really well. It sells better than any of my other books. Um, and it has consistently over the years. And, uh, and it's never, we've never spent any money on advertising. It, it had a, hmm. a, a miserably low uh, print run um, for, the, for, the, for the first printing. But it, they reprinted, I think, 16 times before the paperback came out. Because they, you know, I think they printed like eleven thousand, which is just asking for a failure, and uh, but they had to keep reprinting and reprinting and reprinting and reprinting right up to the time they reprinted a month before the paperback. In before the paperback came out, they reprinted the hard hardcover a month beforehand, um, which is never done, and that was all word of mouth. You know, that's not generally how books are launched, and and that kind of maintains to today. So, so I do, I, you know, the, the short answer is I think that had some success, but it was because it allowed people to engage and lose themselves in the book and become involved with the characters. And there's enough there richness wise that you don't want to put it down. Um, and, and, and all that is by me just going, Oh my God, can I keep these balls in the air when I was writing it? Oh my God, can I, you know, I've got to teach the precepts of Buddhism and, you know, talk about, all the goofy kung fu jokes that I can possibly move <laughs> shaved, head, shaved heads and all. Uh, yeah, the yeah. yeah, the eating thousand year old eggs and uh -huh. you know the sort of shaving the yak, which was one of the on <laughs> the, the callback jokes that shows through that whole Buddhism part. But uh, yeah, I it's I I I can't. It makes me feel a little queasy talking about the success of it, but I'm just glad that people like it, you know and. 
I don't want to analyze it too much because I don't, I can't repeat that, you know, and I, I run into that all the time. It's like, are you going to do a sequel to Lamb? I'm like, nope. Um, because you're going to go, you know, it was good, but it wasn't as good as Lamb. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. I, I, you know, that's just the way it works yeah. because it's, you know, it's the greatest story yeah. ever told that basically, you know, that's what it's called. So I think there are a lot of things that go into success, but I think it's mostly, it's a story about friendship that people resonate with that. They like mm -hmm. the, the sweetness of the, of the relationship between the characters and the adventure mm -hmm. that they go on. And it was very much modeled on sort of uh, Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, more Tom Sawyer than, than the book Huckleberry Finn. Yeah. As a reader, I found that the relationship between Joshua and Biff, certainly a big reason uh, why I enjoyed it. And then the relationship between uh, Biff and Maggie, yeah, uh, and very bittersweet, very very poignant. Uh, you, you wrote you wrote kids, you know, and you wrote them convincingly. Uh, what kind of kid were you? I mean, were you a funny kid, a quiet kid? Were you the smart ass kid? What, what were you growing up? Uh, all of those, but quiet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was totally a smart ass, and I was an only child, and I didn't. And my parents, I think, learned to tune me out early. So I was just like the little kid in the back of the back seat of the car. It's like la 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 la. I just I know I can remember my parents driving to you know, like my grandparents' house, which was far, and and I know I talked the entire time. If I wasn't like car sick and throwing up, I was talking, and um, and I read a lot as a kid. My father was a cop, but he had he read a lot when he was in the navy on a big ship in Korea. And, uh, and so he would go to the library on his day off every week and come home with like this big stack of books for himself. So for, even before I could read, he would bring books home for me. So that became a priority. And since I was an only kid, that was how I burned a lot of time. So there was a lot of, uh, I think, fostering of my imagination and, and sort of storytelling and so forth. But when I got into school, you know, I, having, again, been indulged by nobody telling me to shut the fuck up for years, uh, I talked too much and I, you know, I, I just had like fewer filters than you really should when you're a little kid. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and that maintained right up through high school. I think I only got quiet in my last couple of years when I realized it was just smarter to stay under the radar and not to call attention to yourself if you were like not going to class and stuff. Mm. So, so I, yeah, I was, I was, I was a funny kid. I wasn't particularly, I was, I had friends, but they were like neighborhood people and um i played a little bit of sports i was a mediocre athlete but i played football and basketball and ran track and stuff like that and yeah was, I, I was a pretty normal suburban ohio factory town kid you know what uh be, being funny and and now you know your your career is writing funny books writing books with humor in them mm -hmm. do you ever feel like uh you know, there's an expectation, you know, oh, hey, hi, you're Christopher Moore. Do that funny thing. Be funny. Like you have to be on all the time. Is that? No, something? not so much. Uh, I'm not like a, if you're a comedian. The expectation is it's really nice. Like when I go out on a book tour and I I, spot, I speak for about 40 minutes a night and then do questions. And, um, and I usually kind of prepare something. And it's usually kind of funny. But it doesn't have to be as good as a stand-up because they didn't come in to – here's $30 make me laugh. They came in to meet, <laughs> they came in to meet the guy that made them laugh in their bathtub, Yeah, you know? Uh, and, and that's the great, I love going on tour because every, everybody is more kindly disposed toward me because I've already made them laugh in an, in an environment in which they're comfortable. Mm 
mm-hmm. and, and bookstore people come up and they go, your people are so nice. And I go, well, that's because they're my friends. I just haven't met them before. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not that, you know, you meet someone at dinner, uh, you know, and they're like, oh, you're Christopher Moore. Be funny. I think it always seems to me like they're pleasantly surprised um, if, if I am articulate. And I'm not always, you know, clearly from this podcast, I'm not always funny. Um, <laughs> with a, a novel, the great thing is that you have forever to think of the perfect thing to have said. Mm-hmm. You know, so my, my characters can be hilarious because it's like, well, what, what would Pocket say now? And it's like, well, I'll think about that overnight. Or, you know, if something will occur to me and I write it down and I use it a year and a half later or something like that. Mm-hmm. So so do you, is your social circle, does, do you have a lot of comedians in your social circle or? I know a few. I know a few um, uh, guys that, you know, come through San Francisco and I may see them, you know, once a year and have lunch or something like that. And and mm-hmm. people that I admired from before I was a published writer, you know, uh, one, of, one of them is. I, I have great admiration for people who do stand up and i and i quite honestly when i've taught i always maintain that you can't teach somebody to be funny but you can teach comic timing and i learned most of my comic timing from comedians that i listened to growing up i I think my first album you know everybody was like my first album was the white album my first album was you know black sabbath or something like that and my first album was a george carlin class clown (laughs) um, that i bought with my own money and went down to the little you know (laughs) department store and bought class clown and i was like that where the seven dirty words come on yeah yeah that's exactly it and i you know i sat there and listened to it on my parents big console stereo you know, I was 13 and just until mm-hmm. there was plastic dust on the edge of the turntable. Um, and uh, my first published story was, uh, which I, I don't even have a copy of now, called The Cleanest Game in Town. And it was about this New York street hustler who plays the three card, card Monty with death. And he was the the uh, the story was 1200 words long and it had 17 motherfuckers in it um, <laughs> and, uh, because uh because uh, it was written like uh, I think Eddie Murphy had come out with his his first album and and I again I was by that time in my twenties and out of my own living in California and and I listened to it until it was just worn away and I just had picked up that comic timing so and and that dialect that that Eddie did comedy in you know mm-hmm. so when the, when I teach which is seldom but when I do seminars and stuff like that I tell them that's what you do get learn your ki- your timing from people who are funny you know mm-hmm. and you just instead of pausing you put in a he said or she said so mm-hmm. um, yeah it's one, it's one thing to think of something that's funny it's another thing to deliver it in a way that's funny right and 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 it's hard to get that timing sometimes in in writing and so and and over the years when I've seen a passage um, where somebody pulls that off in, in print, you know, I make a mental note of it and, and, uh, and go, okay, look at how he did this and how, you know, it sort of builds up. And um, I, I remember uh, a passage in a Ben Elton book um, who was one of the principals of, uh, in, um, gosh, the, the Rowan Atkinson show, the Black, uh, Black Adder. He was one of the principal writers and performers in Black Adder, and he's been a, a force in British comedy for years. And there was a book called Snark, I think it was called, um, where he has this military officer who there's a paragraph of how he needs to calmly correct the thinking 
of this other character and he's very meticulous in this paragraph and then when he finally delivers that line that is talking about how he's going to have to talk it's it's a screaming you insane son of a bitch and it just the, <laughs> on the page was so funny because it was the contrast of this very slow thoughtful build up to just completely losing his shit in in one line and that's a hard and i you know i read that 30 years ago and i remember it because i if, okay this is a device that you can use and once again frank we've gone down the rabbit hole and oh that's what that's what this podcast is about it should be okay. I, sh I should have a picture of a rabbit hole instead of a deserted okay uh, I, des deserted factory i, I apologize <laughs> i love talking about craft i have a few friends that uh -huh. i see again once or twice a year and at the end of it they're going well it was nice to talk shop and i'm like well who else am i going to talk about it with <laughs> well let's let, let's touch on that a little bit i i, I read somewhere that uh steinbeck was an inspiration of yours but it was ray bradbury that first made you realize that there was you know a man behind the curtain that there was yeah. craft going on yeah yeah that's that's true and that was about uh how old are you when you're in fifth grade? 11, 11 or 12? 10, 10 or 11, I think. Yeah. yeah, something like that. Yeah, I remember reading R's for Rocket and S's for Space and mm -hmm. uh, The Illustrated Man. And, um, and, and the craft of the story started to show, you know, because, you know, Bradbury was a master of short stories. But, you know, in, an, in a short story, there's, there's no fluff. There's no fat. You've got to, mm -hmm. everything's got to work. And so you could see the, you know, he's telling me this on page one and on page five he's paying it off with this and that sort of mm -hmm. thing and i and i sort of thought okay i'm i'm being i guess i didn't think this as a kid but i now i'll describe it as i'm being jerked around a little bit um mm -hmm. manipulated but that seemed it was interesting and and so that's the first time um that, that i really became aware of that and then of course bradbury's subject matter was awesome uh you know and you know sea monsters and uh and you know people space travel and and right. guys who eat the bones of people and you know dark didn't carnivals he, and all kinds of stuff didn't he write the uh short story where the the something thunder the sound of thunder or something where the guy goes back in time to kill the yeah. dinosaur and yeah the whole butterfly effect uh it was story? yeah that's i think the very first time i saw the butterfly effect in it, and that mm -hmm. is the name of that story that's yeah a really memorable one um and uh and he did a couple. I, the last time I heard Bradbury speak, he talked about a story he had just written called The Toynbee Convection. And, um, and it was a, about a guy who had traveled. Uh, he had built a time machine and traveled ahead in time. And he came back and, um, and he said, we did it. We pulled it off. Every, you know, there's no war. We've cured disease. Everyone gets along. There's no hunger. You know, and, and so the world waits to watch the, you know, 25 years go by and all those things are, are achieved and the world waits to come for the, for the time machine to come by. They want to see him come by and they're all in the spot where the time machine will appear and it doesn't appear. And they all look to him and they go, where's the time machine? And he goes, I lied. I never went ahead in time, but because he had told them that all these problems would be solved and everyone would get along, everybody went forward to do that and, uh -huh. and achieved it. It was a great story and it was that great is. listening to Ray tell the story as a, I'm sure it's crap. I've read it since, but, but it was like the, his excitement as like a guy who was 80 years old telling this story and he was still, you know, excited about it. I, I heard Ray speak, I think 
three times in the 80s and uh, and it it was it was pretty awesome uh, but but that enthusiasm you know well into his his old age you know that he maintained and that sort of uh it wasn't feigned it was you know he still had that mm-hmm. that was that was a pretty cool thing to to mm-hmm. see and and to sort of try on as like, yeah, I would like to be that way. You know, there's there's nothing like it. There's nothing like having a great idea and the so, total potential of it, which for me is usually followed like by, I have no idea how I'm going to do that. Um, <laughs> that you wrote, uh, uh, ideas are cheap and easy. T- telling a good story once you get the idea is hard. And that sounds like that's what you're talking about right here. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's That's, you know the idea of uh and probably you know since we've already talked about it the most ambitious one was you know t- telling the story of of jesus as a comedy and not mm-hmm. losing your reader you know that was like mm-hmm. am i going to be able to pull this off and i didn't know it through the entire time i, I was writing and i didn't know i'd never even written a historical before <laughs> And, and I've had a few books that were like that. Was, you know, there's nothing better than having an idea like that, but the idea of the, the thought that you might be able to pull it off and, and is, I don't want to say it's, it's, it's intimidating is the best way to sure. put it. It's, it's yeah. intimidating. And, and you, have to, you have to break it up into increments. You know, and, uh, but but the, the ambition of a project is, is, going, to main, is going to dictate how good a book it's going to be is you know mm-hmm. can you know, in my case it's always been can i pull this off and if it was like insanely difficult for me i mean there's I, there's some people that i i think uh you know we, we're all given our specific tools and what might be really difficult for me might be really easy for someone else you know and and vice versa you know it, it's sure. uh, i remember reading the Stephen King's book on on writing and he said there's no I believe he said something um, I may be paraphrasing but there's no novel in the world that can't be written in two months and I was like you know eat my shorts Stephen King you know (laughs) free that's like you know Usain Bolt going there's no 100 meter dash that can't be you know done in 9.5 seconds it's like yeah you're Usain Bolt fuck you um he's an anomaly i I mean Mm -hmm. not only has he written a zillion books but they're Mm -hmm. they're good but that said name the funny stephen king book Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, well that's okay so there you go big steve yeah there are some funny passages but yeah yeah. but i've written 16 funny books blow me right Um, Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, you know that's just speaking to everybody gets their own set of skills and everybody gets right. their own um and that's you know that's the spice of it you know that's what makes it good i i there are books that that are brilliantly written that i i couldn't read i couldn't write but i also kind of don't want to read them you know i i can recognize wow that's really good but I don't even want to read that, you know? So of, of course I'm not going to develop the skills to write that kind of thing. You know, I mean, I, you write the book, if you're going to enjoy your career, your life, your work, you write the kind of books you want to read, you know? And you have, and you have to be true to who you are. I think that, that sincerity is pretty, a pretty big draw for readers. If they can sense it, that you're, you're being yourself and not trying to emulate someone else. And I, I don't know. I, whenever I 
talk to other writers or, or writers that are just starting out, I always try to emphasize, you know, your process is your process and it, and it fits your process and it works for you. It's the right process. Don't let other people tell you, you know, how you have to do it. Take suggestions, you know, I'm not saying be stubborn, but ultimately you find what works for you and what kind of work you want to work on. And if you're bored while you're writing your own book, you're probably not writing the right book. <laughs> well, that, that, that's true. I would, I would, I would only say if things aren't working, then definitely look for suggestions. I, I know. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, I didn't finish a book till I was in my thirties and I had started a bunch of them, but I would write one or two chapters and then start mm -hmm. polishing. And I had these amazingly smooth chapter ones and twos, and I never got to chapter three. So, you know, when I, my basically life fell apart when I was around 30, um, I went, okay, I'm going to do what they've been telling me all along, which is write every day, which is, I had tried every other get around, uh, machination to to finish a book or to you know and it never worked it was like oh i'll just do it sunday night before it's due on monday like i used to do turn papers and uh it, none of it worked none of it um and and so uh, i finally went okay i've got to just do what all these successful people have said which is establish a, a discipline and guess what that worked right um and and even now when i get very far off of uh off of my game, I guess I, I, I think I've got to get back to the discipline that, you know, got these other books written. So, so, which is, so it's not to say don't take suggestions. It's, it, but, but in the, the narr and you also develop voice as you go along. I mean, you, you get more confident. I, I will be the first one to tell you that, you know, the, my 16th book was as hard to write as my first book. I just knew I could write a book. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done it a bunch of times. Um, so you get some confidence um and that you can pull stuff off and um but as you're developing your voice that's very much to what you're saying you know it's very much you can't do what someone else is doing and and i i find it particularly i guess pernicious is the word a lot of mfa writing programs that are really sort of geared toward a, a literary writing track is they they can really be as harmful the word they can make it more difficult for a young writer you know if you try to pick up the burden of literature when all you need to when all you're trying to do is learn how to write a story mm -hmm. and interest a reader it's too heavy it's too big a rock to lift you know i mean just getting it done period is hard enough to try and add some world-shaking meaning to it or some you know the some illustration of the human heart in conflict with itself, as Faulkner said, um, that's a big rock to lift, man, especially when you're, you know, in your early twenties and you're just, you're just learning to get the words in the right order, you know? Um, so that's the case where I would, I would vehemently agree with what you said about finding your own way of doing it, but also finding people you admire going, okay, that's what I want to do. You know, how I had a woman, how did it work for them? Does that work for me too? Yeah, I, try mm -hmm. it on. It might not work. Yeah. Imitation. That's why you know I don't write short stories anymore, just because nobody will pay you for them. But um, that when you're starting out, short stories are great because you can, you know, you don't have to spend a year of your life. You can go. I'm going to try on Edgar Allan Poe's voice. I'm going to try. You know, I'm going to try on John Steinbeck's voice, and I'm going to try on William Faulkner's voice. And you can do it for you know 12, 20 pages, and you go. Well, it's, I clearly. 
I don't write like William Faulkner, but I got some interesting shit out of it. And you kind of find mm -hmm. where you're going by, by imitation. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I'm a, I'm a big proponent of that when you're, you know, in a, when you're sort of learning and so forth. And, and those people whose work resonated with you, you know, go, you want to give other people that feeling, you know, mm -hmm. um, I, you, you asked me early on who was uh, my favorite writer, John Steinbeck. I don't write anything like John Steinbeck. I mean, I, I, I think sometimes in my more, I guess, pastoral stories, my small town stories, I aspire to that lyricism. But what I learned from Steinbeck was to be forgiving toward my characters. You know, he would write about these extraordinarily flawed human beings, but with great affection and great forgiveness. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that's, that's going to, that works for me rather than just being a snarky asshole, you know, mm -hmm. which I had mastered. Uh, I, one of the things that I, I learned from reading Steinbeck's work was we are all as human beings flawed, but that's what unites us in our humanity. And and if you sort of have that in mind, especially um, in my stories that are multiple point of view, where I'm looking at basically the same event through the eyes of many different characters, you know, you you have to sort of come in with with a benevolence toward those characters, even if they're the bad guy. You know, you, mm -hmm. if you don't look at their point of view, maybe especially if they're the bad guy. Yeah, exactly, because that's the character that has to be more credible. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, let's talk about crime fiction. Uh, we'll get back to our interview with Christopher Moore in just a few moments, but uh, now is the time on the show uh, when I like to turn to the experts uh, to get some book recommendations. And by experts, I mean uh, people who work at bookstores, particularly mystery bookstores of the independent variety, and other authors, because uh, one thing that... Uh, Writers tend to do is read a lot. Uh, and so this month we're going to hear from uh, Linda Bond from Spokane, Washington, uh, who works at an independent bookstore there, and from uh, Eric Pruitt, who is a crime fiction author. Hey, Linda. Hi, Frank. And we're back again. That's wonderful. Um, you know, this time I thought, I seem to be running with black authors this year for some reason, but um, you're familiar with Walter Mosley, I'm sure. Of course. He came, yeah, his Easy Rollins series, but he's also written a bunch of other things, and he has a brand new book out called Joe King Oliver, um, was a, an investigator in um, New York Police Department, and uh, this book is about him trying to solve a couple of cases at once and of course he almost gets killed and a few other things happen so this takes us to new york city in that area and um, you know his books are always wonderful even if he's not doing easy he's doing another protagonist that's interesting so i hope your listeners will get into that one for sure well, it shouldn't be much of a stretch to hop over from uh, from one Walter Mosley to another. Thanks, Linda. Sure. My name is Eric Pruitt. I'm the author of the upcoming short story collection, Townies, and producer, writer, and co-host of The Long Dance, the true crime podcast that looks into the North Carolina Valentine's murders in 1971. Uh, my book recommendation would be the true crime slash literary analysis called The Real Lolita, 
written by Sarah Winding. Uh, as a fan of the book Lolita, the Vladimir Nabokov novel, I found this book to be incredibly compelling because uh, Miss Weinman studies the uh, source material that inspired Nabokov to write the, the novel Lolita, specifically the true crime abduction of Sally Horner by Frank LaSalle. Although Nabokov would go on to deny that he was inspired by this book, he allowed a little parenthetical inclusion of this crime in the novel, which she uses to springboard an entire investigation into both the original kidnapping of Sally Horner and how Nabokov used it to tell the story of Humboldt and Lolita. It's very well done. It's very precise. If you're a fan of true crime, if you're a fan of Lolita, this uh, will scratch both those itches. So I definitely recommend Sarah Weinman's The Real Lolita. Well, there you go, folks. A couple of great recommendations uh, to fill your uh, probably already stacked high to be read pile, uh, if you're anything like me, but uh, uh, always willing to add a good book to that. Uh, now let's get back to our interview with Christopher Moore. Your website lists a bunch of jobs that you did before you uh, became a full-time writer. Uh-huh. Uh, I think uh, the one that jumped out at me, the two that jumped out at me was uh, uh, Roofer and uh, DJ. Uh-huh. Uh, now, was roofing the hardest one? Uh, I mean, I, anybody that's ever thrown a roof on their own house knows how hard that work is. Uh, was it tough? I was really young when I did that. And, and so I didn't, I basically took, it was a summer job for me. And I, and I took uh, the discipline of football practice, two-a-day football practice in the sultry Midwest into uh, roofing. And, and so basically my job was being, I didn't even put roofs on. I was a runner. I ran bales of shingles up and down these 30-foot ladders on these old farmhouses and tore off slate roofs and then shoveled slate into a truck and, and took the slate to the dump because these roofs were 100 years old on these houses that we tore off. So physically, it was pretty demanding, but I was really young and really fit. you know. So I didn't have anything to compare it to except, you know, old white guys yelling at me to run faster, you know, um, <laughs> and blowing whistles at you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just being, I, I still hate coaches because of that. Um, before I did that, I, I worked on a strawberry farm in the summer and, and I was, ba I was doing stoop labor. I was pulling weeds and, and picking strawberries for, I think they paid us a nickel a quart. This sounds very, Grapes of fucking wrath, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> it, does. it? But it's true. I mean, it's true. They, they, it was a, it was a summer football work project to keep us from becoming criminals. So we got picked up by uh, in a paddy wagon uh, in the morning um, by the by the city police, and they took us out to the strawberry farm. And maybe twenty of us worked in the fields all day, or usually half a day actually, all day on Saturday and on weekdays it was half a day. Wow. And um, and uh, so that was hard but i was you know 14 you know what do you have yeah. to compare it to nothing um, yeah it's yeah i i uh, this the stuff that i did that was physically difficult i was in really i was really fit and i and i was completely 
capable of doing it. It wasn't a problem. What about the DJ job? He says you were a rock and roll DJ. I, that, right? I was. I was. I, I lived in this little town, which was it was great. I moved out of Santa Barbara, which is a medium-sized city with a, a very affluent medium-sized city, to this little town in central on the central coast of California, and it was only five thousand people, and it was a sort of a great place for becoming because if you wanted to do something, you just had to sort of pursue it, and you could do it, and that was how I became a DJ. It was like there was this station that was sort of, it wasn't really public access, but it was a commercial station, but um, it wasn't programmed. And if you, if you wanted to do it and you could work a, a, a board, they would let you do it um, for, you know, and if you sucked, you didn't get to do it again. But uh, so I, I wasn't bad at it and I got a drive time, you know, job with them oh, wow. for like, like three or four hours a day. And um and they had a great library of of music, and you could put your own sets together, and uh, it was it was great fun, you know. And I I got pretty good at the time of doing things like sight reading, and you know you you have DJ specific DJ chops that you do like can you play these two songs at full volume together for one minute and it sounds like a smooth transition and shit like that that only DJs do. This station was one of the last independent rock and roll stations that wasn't programmed. I think there was only four of them in the United States. So the, as tiny as we were, the record companies would send us all kinds of stuff and call us while we were in the air asking us to play a record and stuff because we were actually making creative decisions. It was a wow. great, it was a great avocation, a great job. I had, and um, it was fun. I wrote little stories and, and did them between musical sets and stuff. And one of them ended up being one of my books, Bloodsucking Fiends, the, 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 plot was a throwaway like two minute story that i did on the radio so it was it was a good deal and i was doing four jobs at that time so i would do uh i was doing two waiter jobs i was doing paste up for the local newspaper on thursdays and uh and i did drive time radio like four or five night four or five days a week four days a week i guess um so it was uh, i had one shift a week off on thursday evenings and I would do my laundry on that. <laughs> but, uh... So, hey, let's talk about Noir. That, that is your newest book, uh, mm-hmm. and it is your first legitimately crime fiction book. What drew you to, to write crime fiction? Uh, basically, it wasn't the crime bit of it. It was the voice of... Uh, I, I've written stuff because I like the way people talk. And I, mm-hmm. I spoke earlier about doing, you know, written, writing dialogue for, you know... Um, you know, African-American characters that are, you know, you know, very hip and, and sort of speak in a specific way. And I like trying to figure out how to make that work on the page. And so I, I was driven, I was sort of drawn to it by tough guy talk. Going back to, you know, when you're a kid and you're watching Looney Tunes, all those guys, all those cartoon characters were based on actor. Many of them were based on actors that were on the Warner Brothers lot you know, when these guys, the animators were drawing the characters and voicing the characters. So they sound like Edward G. Robinson and Humphrey Bogart, and they're all tough guys. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so including Bugs Bunny, I mean, he talks like he's a, a, a smart ass from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And so I was, from the time I was about five, you know, I always was hearing that, you know, and then watching the Bowery boys and then up through watching noir films. And then 
um, reading, you know, all sort of the classics of Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and uh, the other one, the other sort of of that big triad, James M. Cain. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and, and the way that they were written, you know, in, to my mind, Chandler being probably the best writer of prose of that bunch. But, but um, I think, and then there's a, a writer who's not really a crime writer uh, named Damon Runyon, who was really popular in the mm-hmm. 30s and 40s. And his guys are really specific in the dialogue that they talk and everything's mm-hmm. in present tense but it's talking about things in the past and you know so me and jimmy we go into this diner that kind of thing and right, uh, right. and i and i really was my idea was to bring that to a modern story because i thought it was funny i loved reading those stories mm-hmm. and and the crime part of it was just incidental to that you know that was just the, the vehicle to get those guys talking that uh, way let's see and, so it's uh, more about it was more about spending time with those characters, and because those characters are involved in crime, we're going to write crime fiction. Yeah, exactly. And and the fact that there were certain um, aspects of noir that you know, like it's kind of a check the boxes thing. It's like there's got to be a dangerous dame and a lot of liquor and cigarettes mm-hmm. and neon and fog and thing that I did I actually did a survey like on Twitter when I was writing this book. It's like what has to be in noir. And <laughs> the, the other thing is that everybody kept saying it's got to have a hopeless ending, and I was like, no, nah, not going to do that. Um, so, so while there were conventions, um, I, I didn't adhere to all of them, but I tried to kind of send up all of them in, in the project. So that's what brought me to it. And the, and then the crime bit was, it it was just a vehicle basically. And, and I wanted to, to sort of have in the Jim Thompson form of sort of everyday guys that are, that are sucked into it rather than Mm -hmm. detectives. You know, um, mm-hmm. and so in, in Jim Thompson's books, you'll have some poor bum who's working as a bellman at a hotel and some dangerous dame comes in and destroys his life. You know, um, so they're all it's all about grifters and, and just, you know, mugs on the street. And, and that's what drew me to it. And then the crime was like you said, it was just you got to have a plot. <laughs> ostensibly yeah <laughs> it's funny you mentioned damon runyon I actually quoted him uh in an epigram for one of my books because he he said uh i've long ago come to the conclusion that all life is six to five against <laughs> <laughs> so i thought that was a pretty good one for a for a story set in las vegas and which at least one of the characters meets a yeah band, so. yeah absolutely and and so many of his uh his stories had horse players in it. So they all talked that way. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I put a little bit of that in it. I, the problem I, I, I was abundantly aware of when I was writing this is that it was, I was writing it to a, a 21st century audience that had no idea what I was talking about, you know, mm-hmm. six to five against or stuff like that. So there was, every time I say that, cause I think it's a great phrase. So I've used it in, in several books and mm-hmm. I've had to take it out sometimes because too many of the beta readers are, what does this mean? You know, yeah. I had to Google, yeah. I had to Google this. Well, if you have to stop and Google something, I, I'm probably going to need to either give you some context or take it out, you know? Yeah. And it's, and you can't stop that. You can't educate someone up to their, up to, to what you're talking about, because it just, you end up being captain exposition. Mm-hmm. It's got to, it's got to happen dramatically and easy and, and, uh, or people have got to be able to ignore it. You know, that's the thing. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Six to five against can't be germane or you have to explain it. It just, if it's something that's just, that's a guy, something a guy says, then people just blow by it. It's like, uh, um, I, I have a habit of, I don't really learn the names of characters in a book I'm reading. I just go, oh, that's the D guy. And once I've sort of 
assigned a, an identity to that character, you know, and, and <laughs> I don't even read the whole name, which is fine. And you sort of, as you know, when you go to you know, famous novelist school, they teach you don't have a bunch of characters with the same letter in their name. Um, <laughs> but of course, when I was writing these Shakespeare books, it's like, really? Edmund and Edgar? Really? Mm -hmm. Helena mm -hmm. and Hermia? Really, Shakespeare? You know, <laughs> you bastard. And, um, when you get that big, you can break all the rules if you want to. Well, right? it, the other thing, <laughs> he was writing for the stage. So Rodrigo and, 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 and Rodriguez looked differently. Right. Um, and sounded different. And yeah, they weren't. He didn't have to different. worry about people seeing the, the different spellings on the page. So, mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, that's, you kind of have to do that with, with that. What would be the word? The anarchistic phrasing, you know, you sort of have to, to reel it in and and i've dealt, the, I, the reason i bring up the shakespeare books is because the it, when i write them i describe it as they're shakespeare -y. you know they're, <laughs> they're not they're not nearly as as uh, opaque um as as shakespeare is you know i i actually yeah. use that no fear shakespeare thing when i'm reading it which has the shakespeare stuff on the left and modern American English translation on the right. Cause I don't know what the hell he's talking about sometimes. Um, it, was, it was meant to be seen, not just read. So not only it, that, it, and it yeah. really, and it really helps. Um, you know, when, when fool came out, people said, do I have to read King, read King Lear? And I said, I would really suggest watching a King Lear on video rather than reading it. Because <laughs> if, if you're a neophyte to Shakespeare, it's a lot easier to figure out what's going on if you're watching them say it rather than trying to figure out what, you know, an arras is. So, uh, yeah, I, but, but it's the same thing with the, with that gambler thing and Damon Runyon stuff, but nevertheless, there's, there was stuff that he, that he did was, that was hilarious. And I just went the next step. You know, I have a kid in noir that starts calling people names <laughs> that just are completely inappropriate they're different yeah he doesn't know what yeah. they mean but he's like you dirty manchego and then you know sammy the main character goes that's a cheese kid and he's going you know, and he argues with them that it's not <laughs> yeah no you're you're a, you're you're a dirty liar you're a stinking liar this solenoid um it's a car park kid oh. which was great yeah. fun I, you know so so a lot of what drew me to it that was a long way of saying it was the language of it i liked the language the tough guy language mm -hmm. of it and so for folks who haven't read the book yet it does start in very classic terms with the main character sammy and in walks uh uh i always just she's the cheese but what's her stilton stilton yeah yeah stilton she walks in and steals his heart and he's got a shady background and he's got a shady boss and there's a dirty cop and and it, it all starts out that way but you couldn't resist getting a little supernatural could you <laughs> no i knew it was gonna happen something was gonna have to happen i um, thought you did it really well though because uh the supernatural route that you went was very much in keeping with the time period that that the story was set well that that was quite by accident i um i just was doing general research i just uh, the book set in 1947 san francisco which i picked for a lot of reasons uh, but mainly i just thought it was interesting what was going on sort of demographically in the city post-war because most people don't know that the whole west coast changed completely during world war ii a quick synopsis of it is what happened was the, most of the defense ships and aircraft were built on the West Coast. Most of the working age men were off to war. So there was this 
all these women that were brought into, you know, we know about Rosie the Riveter and Wendy the Welder who were brought into the workforce for the first time. But you also had this exodus of, of this migration from Jim Crow South to jobs and, and living mm -hmm. conditions and opportunity and health care on the West Coast in Los Angeles, Seattle and the Bay Area. And so you had this this big demographic change of, you know, a, a 700 percent increase in the African-American population of the Bay Area cities and stuff like that. So I and, and all that is settling in 1947. So that was why I decided on setting it then. That allowed you quite a diversity of characters. I mean, and 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 the reader gets to learn something. You know, I didn't mm -hmm. know that stuff, and that's how I approach no. researchers. I'll go like, "That's a cool thing. I had no idea." You know mm -hmm. that, that they had all you know black wel welding crews on the ships, and so and that sort of stuff. And 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 I have a character from the like whitest town in the whitest state. You know, from Boise, Idaho, who comes to San Francisco and through different circumstances ends up working in the shipyard. And because he's a smart ass ends up being put on an all African-American welding crew, you know, sort of as a punishment. And uh, and so that allows this sort of cultural exchange between these characters. Um, anyway, the the I forgot what we were talking about. Um, the, the supernatural element. The supernatural. The su used. Yeah. So I Google San Francisco 1947. You know, what's going to come up? That's how you start anything, you know. And what comes up in like page three of Google, which exists, is... And we know that Ramsey visited San Francisco in 1947. And there's a little uh, article from the Chronicle in 1947 that the commander of Roswell, New Mexico uh, Army Air Base came to San Francisco. And one of these UFO conspiracy guys on his blog had written about the commander of Roswell was in San Francisco in 1947. And I kind of ran it down and it was like, that's all we knew. But also, the crash at Roswell happened in June of 1947, and the whole flying saucer thing happened in summer of 1947. And I was like, well, that's going to be in the book. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I just had to figure out how to get all that stuff happening on, on the West Coast. But, you know, and I know that's a bit of a spoiler, but it's not that big of a spoiler. Because it's, no, I, there, there's plenty left. There's plenty yeah, of Yeah, how it, how it happens left. and so forth. But... But that, you know, that was the, up until that point, I was like, what am I going to have happen? And I was, you know, um, as, as you know, there's a Chinese American character who's mm -hmm. Sammy, the main character's best friend. And I knew there was going to be something in Chinatown. And I was like, well, man, what am I going to do? And I was, I really had contemplated that somebody had smuggled a baby dragon into, uh, <laughs> into Chinatown and that there was, that somebody had to find the baby dragon. Um, and it was a real dragon. And and so if there's ever a sequel, spoiler alert, it may have a baby dragon in it. Um, <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Yeah. But uh, but that's that's how the, the whole UFO thing ended up being part of the of the story. It was historically it would have been part of the story. Mm hmm. That was one of the things that was actually pretty interesting in reading the book was that there was such a diversity of, of culture and location. I mean, you get Sammy in the dive bar with, you know, his mostly white drunk Steven guys. Orders and stuff yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, 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 yeah. But then he, his, his buddy, uh, was it Eddie was his buddy's name, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah Eddie, 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 Eddie Two Shoes Eddie, or something. Eddie Shoe and they call him Eddie, Eddie Shoe. Shoes. 
because he wears uh, white uh, wing tip, white and black wing tips all the time. But uh, so he's like a Chinese American who's trying to embrace being American, but still has his Chinese roots. And he pulls Sammy into his world and his parents' world. And there's some pretty funny stuff that happens there that I won't spoil. Uh, but then you end up seeing uh, you get into the uh, African American, the black. Uh, Lone Jones. Cult, cult, yeah. yeah, yeah, all that. I mean, it's it's just it's it's very diverse, and that that made for a, a lot of fun, a little bit of fish out of water opportunities for jokes, obviously, and and uh, then of course you get into the supernatural, and so you know I, I think you've definitely written uh, crime fiction, even though it's humor and even though it has some fantastical elements to it, I would call it crime fiction. Well, I, yeah, and I. I'm not like trying to move a target when, cause people want to say, what, well, how would you describe what you do? And I was like, I don't know. Um, this one's probably crime fiction. I, you know, the title ended up being noir because it was a, it was a working title. I didn't have a title for it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we got down to where I was turning it in and, and I had a phone call with my editor. I was like, I don't know what to call it. What do you, I'd maybe I'd send her a, an email. I said, what about this? What about this? What about this? And, but all the pages had noir on it because as a working title, you had to have something to call the file up with. And um, and she said, why don't we just call it noir? And I'm like, well, that's a little bit pretentious. You know, it's like, <laughs> I can imagine people who are really like Eddie Muller and, and James Elroy going, hey, blow me, buddy. I've been doing this for a living for 40 years. Um, I've got 20 noir books. What do you write? Yeah, yeah, you don't know anything. Uh, and I was like, that is true. I know nothing. But it just it sort of worked, you know, because it, it did have the check the boxes and it's and it's a satire and, and so forth. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I guess it fits in the crime. I have a book called Island of the Sequin Love Nut that has uh, uh, organ smuggling in it. And that's that's also so, sort of primarily a, a crime book, even though it's got all kinds of wild cargo cult South Pacific stuff going on yeah. in it. And, uh, you know, so I think that, that that's just I'm, I'm always surprised. I have friends who are, quote, crime writers and they talk about crime writing like it's some sort of literary basement and i'm like yeah except you guys are selling more books than anybody on the planet except uh, for romance <laughs> well that's true if you look at uh, any uh, at the new york times list in any week the top mm-hmm. six titles in fiction are going to be crime you know mm-hmm. but, but yeah. there's still this sort of like yeah we're the the poor insanely rich stepchildren of literature and i'm like <laughs> yeah i'm so sorry that you have to deal with that um but yeah i guess it is i guess it is crime fiction and i and i read a lot of crime fiction I, less now than i did i'm just you know what that, let me admit to that i just read less now than i used to it's just hard to read as as many novels there's just so many distractions that are one click away who do you read when you do read crime fiction? Um, well, I was I was a I was a dedicated follower of Elmore Leonard, mm-hmm. um, a, and a just a great writer. And I always, you know, he was one of those guys I buy I bought in hardcover. And then there's people that I've read and that I just don't read anymore. I mean, I read a bunch of like James Patterson's in the in the early '90s, I think, and I just went, you know, okay, I, I see what this guy does. So I'll read uh, Karen Slaughter occasionally, a Laura Lipman mm-hmm. occasionally, uh, Harlan Coben occasionally. Um, but but there's there are other people that I've uh, that I've sort of moved away from, not because they're not good, but because I feel like I know what they're what they do, you know. And uh, um, like Bob Crace, I like a lot, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. I probably haven't read his last five or six books. Uh, Connolly, 
um, I like, but I ha probably haven't read his last 10 books. It, it, and this is, that's just more about me than it does them. I don't, mm. I don't mean to disparage anybody. I, I like those guys' books. I just, those are the guys I went to when I go to guys. There are people like Andrew Vox. It's way too fucking dark for me. I'm like, no, nah, mm -hmm. I don't need to go there. Elroy's stuff is a little dark for me. And, mm -hmm. and that's, that's a self-protection thing. It's not, again, because it's not good. It's because that's not a place I want to spend my headspace in. And there are, there are horror story writers like that who, it's not that they don't have skill. It's just, I don't want to spend a week of my life in that headspace. I think um, some people feel the same way about Stephen King or Dean Koontz or any of these other yeah, yeah, authors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't, doesn't yeah. mean they're not great authors. It's right, just uh, you, right. your own personal yeah, desire. And, and, I, and I think that um, nowadays, I mean, we're speaking in, you know, the end of September 2018, you know, there's so much horseshit in the real world that i need you know <laughs> my wife and i'll go yeah. like what do you want to watch and, and she'll go comedy i need a comedy <laughs> because there's just yeah. so much stress in just the, mm -hmm. the the outside world right now mentally i you know not not physically i mean we're fortunate to be doing okay but um and and i feel that same way about sometimes with reading dark fiction or stuff that's just too visceral or hopeless mm -hmm. you know and uh, anyway mm -hmm. Well, I, I think people either read dark fiction and it purges whatever is going on that mm -hmm. they might be feeling bad about, or it makes them feel bad. And obviously, if you're in the latter category, why why spend the time there? You know. Yeah, and it's and it's by mood too. I mean, there's times when you know I can I can pick up a you know uh, Clive Barker book and I'll be fine with it, but you know, not if you know the rest of the world seems to be on fire um so so but but again that says more about me than it does about those writers I, but uh i my top guys elmore leonard for sure bob crace and there's somebody that i i read a lot when i was reading bob crace and i can't think of, of who else it was but somebody i'm uh, lawrence block be, maybe oh yeah i like larry block stuff a lot I said Larry like I've ever met him, and I haven't. Um, <laughs> I, I, I met him for like three minutes at uh, BoucherCon here about a month ago. <laughs> but he was a sweet guy, though, I hear. Oh, he, he was really nice. He was yeah. very, very nice. And and really, most of the crime writers you run into, I found, uh, most writers in general uh, are exactly that. Yeah, that I, I would agree with you. And, I you know, something for your listeners, which I think as a service, uh, you know, maybe I can do and you can do is to say that, I've been on both sides of that table. You know, I've been completely just sweating into my shoes because I was about to meet someone or didn't know what to say. And I've been on the side where, you know, there were 600 people lining up to meet me. And no one doesn't like to hear that their work moved you or you like their work. No one. That's not, it seems trivial. It seems like saying I'm sorry at a funeral, but it's not. Um, and, and so don't ever feel bad about that. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. which is not to say, you know, tackle someone on the street, but if you see somebody <laughs> on the street, it's okay. I mean, I, I'm not, when I, you know, as you know, authors don't get recognized much. I mean, unless you're like, right. you know, there's like three authors that people could pick out of a crowd, you know? Um, and, and so if someone says, Hey, are you Christopher Morningsley? And I love your work. That's the thing to say. I love your books. I love your work. But, but that's mm -hmm. just my public service part of saying, you know, I spent a lot of time being freaked out about meeting Ray Bradbury or Harlan Ellison or, 
you know, um, and they love to hear that. They might be worried about, oh my God, I need to find a restroom and you can't expect them to drop their life, but nobody doesn't want to hear that. And you don't need to be afraid of that. Uh, someone that I haven't met that I would definitely like to say, thanks for all the music you, you mentioned, uh, in the flash forward questions from the previous oh, the Springsteen? Bruce Springsteen. What's your favorite Springsteen? The early stuff, greetings from Asbury park and, um, and born to run of course is a brilliant album. You know, uh, speaking, you know, to, to sort of wrap it around where I talked about lamb and saying the ambition of a project really defines how successful it is. Ultimately. I read a interview with Springsteen where he said, you know, we went into the studio and said we were going to make the greatest rock and roll album that had ever been made. And I don't know if he did that, but he got in the top 10, you know, certainly made a much better record than if that hadn't been his goal. Right. And, and, and I, and I just have heard that in the last couple of years, they did a, there was a documentary about the making of born to run. And mm -hmm. it has a lot of in the studio uh, footage and so forth. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Springsteen is maybe of a time. I don't, I don't know how old you are, Frank, but I'm, you know, just turned 61 and, and, mm -hmm. and he was of a time. I mean, I discovered him at, you know, 18, 19 years old. And, and I was a kid in the Midwest wanting to get out, you know, so things, you know, lines like barefoot girl sit on the hood of a Dodge drinking warm beer in the soft summer rain. That's a fucking brilliant line. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, and that's why the early stuff appeals to me is it's really poetic and, and aspirational. And and it's a you know, it's a young guy who's just on fire and uh, lyrically. And, and when I discovered that I was a young guy who who needed to be on fire and uh and so that's that's why those you know blinded by the light and growing up and mm -hmm. uh you know thunder road and uh, you know the the songs are awesome <laughs> the reason i brought it up really uh aside from any excuse to talk springsteen is a good excuse is he's a storyteller i mean yeah. many of his songs are, are 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 stories many of them could be easily transformed into a novel. I mean, they're a novel in 49 words, some of them. Right. And that's really what you were talking about when you talked about telling a good story. Once you get the idea, right. um, that's what it, what you've done in, in noir. Uh, certainly uh, the, the pocket novels are the other ones that I, that I've read and, uh, and lamb. Uh, speaking of which you said you're working on a pocket sequel. How's that going? I, it's hard. <laughs> no different than the first 16, huh? Well, I, I, harder, actually. You know, there's a there's a point, I, again, talking about craft, nobody cares about this. There's a point where you tell yourself... All the crime writers that are listening do, so... Yeah, there's a point where you tell yourself that I, you know, I can't bullshit myself. I can't make up conditions to keep me from getting my work done. Writer's block is a, is a indulgence that you can't have if if you want to be a pro, you know? you just, you might have a, you might be stuck, but there's no, you don't give it that sort of uh, power to give it a name. Um, you just go back to the page again and again and again. And I'm just having trouble getting my work done because I'm trying to write comedy that's not particularly relevant to the world that's going on. And there's just so much heinous fuckery going on in America right now that I mm -hmm. can't get away from. And it's hard to get my headspace into this sort of, you know, world of fairies and and you know elves and night kings and profane jesters and all this stuff that i'm writing about that's just me you know it's mm -hmm. it's it it ain't like i have to work with a shovel so i'm i'm 
abundantly aware of my privilege. But I'm but the honest answer is I don't think I've had this tough a time getting the work done in 30 years. Uh, wow. And it's and it's 100 percent because of the political climate. I, you know, I wake up pissed off. I go to sleep pissed off. I stay pissed off most of the day. And if that's a weakness of my character, so be it. But it, it decided to not manifest itself until I was 60 years into this journey. And and so the short answer of how's it going? <laughs> it's it goes lousy. <laughs> it goes. It goes slowly. And I hope what I'm writing is OK, but I'm not getting a lot done and I need to get past that. Quick antidote. I had a when I was writing Lamb, my editor at the time called me and he said, "How's the book going?" And I went down this rabbit hole about this and that and trying to keep all these balls in the air. And I was trying to figure out how to, you know, tell the story and all the things that we talked about and and walk that razor's edge. Except I hadn't figured out how to do it yet. And I probably talked for twenty minutes. And he goes, "Chris, when your editor asks you how the book's going." The answer is fine. <laughs> so, so Frank, the new book is going fine. <laughs> well, if it's anything like the past 16, I think we'll be all right. So thank you so much. Uh, I, I want to really uh, thank you for coming on the, the show. It's been a lot of fun. And, uh, uh, the book is, uh, that's out now folks is noir by Christopher Moore. And, uh, it's crime fiction that doesn't miss. Thank you so much. Take care, Frank. Well, there you are, folks. Uh, now you know a ton more about Christopher Moore. Uh, and I have to say that that was a fun interview for me. I uh, was really grateful that he uh, agreed to come on uh, the podcast here. It's kind of a niche podcast and, and a little bit outside of his wheelhouse, except for uh, noir, of course. And uh, he was very gracious when I approached him. And uh, as you uh, just saw, he uh, gives a really good interview. So uh, go check out Noir, and that will probably start you down a path to checking out Lamb and You Suck and Blood Sucking Fiends and Serpent of Venice and, and every other uh, possible book he's got out there. If you, if you dig his style, you'll find uh, uh, that is uh, certainly one of the threads that goes throughout all of his books. Um, Next month's main episode will feature Gray Bass Knight, uh, and we caught up with Gray to find out a little bit about him in advance of our December episode. Gray Bass Knight, what city do you live in now? New York City. Who's your favorite writer? In the crime genre right now, I'd have to say Dennis Lehane. Favorite movie? 2001 A Space Odyssey. Favorite TV show? Combat with Vic Morrow. Oh, reaching way back. Uh, do you have a nickname? Gravy, maybe. Gravy, maybe. What are you working on right now? The sequel to Flutter the Fox. What hobby do you have that has nothing to do with writing? Tinkering with my John Deere lawn tractor. What's your favorite sport? I guess it's football. Who's your favorite musician? Eric Clapton. Five second advice to aspiring writers. There's only one rule, but in chair, four to six hours a day. Where would you like to go that you've never been? Vietnam. What's your favorite quote? Writing is easy. You just sit down at a keyboard and slice open a vein. Who said that? <laughs> I think it was Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome.
So, folks, there's a preview of what you can expect uh, from Grey Bass Night next month, uh, another mystery author. Also, we'll hear from uh, a couple of open and shut episodes uh, featuring uh, Jeremiah Franklin and my writing partner, Jim Wilski. I'd like to uh, say thank you to Christopher Moore for coming on the show, uh, Linda Bond and Eric Pruitt for taking some time and giving uh, some great book recommendations. Uh, and always, uh, thanks to you for listening to the show. That's it for this episode. And so until next time, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.